The following program was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. This series of programs about Fiorello LaGuardia is dedicated to the memory of Hank Majewski. Hank, like Fiorello, was a dreamer and a doer. American citizens have the right to be provided work so that they can support their families decently and properly. Now is the time to fight, to fight for the best interests of our city, and we have public housing was finally recognized as a proper function of government. It's not done by speeches. The LaGuardia Archives at LaGuardia Community College of the City University of New York presents The Dreamer and the Doer, The Life and Work of Fiorello LaGuardia, with narrator Tony LoBianco. Mr. X, may we ask you a question? It's amazing, is it not? That the city pays you slightly less than 50 bucks a week, yet you purchased a private yacht. I am positive your honor must be joking. Any working man can do what I have done. For a month or two, I simply gave up smoking. And I put my extra pennies one by one into a a little tin box, a little tin box, and a little tin key unlocks. There is nothing unorthodox about a little tin box, about a little tin, about a little tin box. The Tin Box Parade, it was called. The parade of Tammany Hall politicians who came before Judge Samuel Seabury during his investigation into graft and corruption in New York City politics. Seabury's investigations would eventually lead to the resignation of one mayor, James J. Walker, and to the election of another, Fiorello H. LaGuardia. Fiorello was a reformer, and his race for mayor in 1933 rekindled a spirit of idealism in the city. But he was also a hard-nosed politician for whom the ends often justified the means. Sylvia Lipton, who worked for LaGuardia's mayoral campaign, recalls Fiorello's words. I will do anything to get there, and once I get there, then I can institute, you know, controls and clean the government and so on and so forth. I would say that he was uh, ruthless in his honesty. Fiorello's honesty would extend not only into the corridors of power at City Hall, where he waged a tireless battle against corruption, but to the city streets as well, where he relentlessly pursued racketeers and gangsters. LaGuardia realized that these hoodlums often preyed upon immigrants and the poor, those least able to defend themselves, and he believed that government had a responsibility to protect their rights. This was the man who became New York's 99th mayor, a complex man, like many politicians before and after. But LaGuardia was something more, much more. He would become one of the greatest reform mayors of New York City or of any other city. Fiorello's experiment in honest government began at one minute past midnight, January 1st, 1934. It was an exciting time 
especially for thousands of young people who had campaigned for LaGuardia and voted for him. To them, this election symbolized a new beginning in city politics, a breath of fresh air after the Walker scandals. And they were eager to go to work in the new administration. Among those youthful reformers who went to work for LaGuardia was Louis Yavna. The people who came in, I knew many of them, were largely a young, intellectual, reform-minded group who felt that they were engaging in a great adventure. Most of them had little experience in the world. Myself, I was only 23 at the time, and this was an opportunity to change the world. Before LaGuardia's administration, many young people would never have considered holding a job in city government. The opinion that most people had in those days, and prior to LaGuardia's administration, was to think of the holders of these jobs with contempt. It was recognized, and it was a fact, that the people who held those jobs were the Tammany Ward leaders, the lackeys in the district clubs. In fact, in the Department of Investigation where I worked, we discovered that most of the people who held these exempt jobs never even showed up to work. They came around only on payday. These exempt or non-civil service office holders were some of the first ones that LaGuardia wanted to remove. As Commissioner of Investigations, Fiorello appointed Paul Blanchard, a socialist and former clergyman. He also told Blanchard, You are my eyes and my ears. Do everything you can to clean up the city administration. And that's exactly what he proceeded to do. Now my walk will be different. My talk and my name. My walk will be different. My talk and my name. Nothing about me is gonna be the same. Most impartial observers agree that LaGuardia was highly successful at cleaning up corruption in the city's administration. And in his campaign for re-election in 1937, the mayor confidently declared that he had smashed the Tammany spoils system. But some pockets of corruption would always remain, no matter what steps were taken. A case in point was the New York Police Department. Judge Eugene Canuto was one of the mayor's closest associates. Was there an honest administration? We're talking about Lou Valentine, who was commissioner for most of those years, Wallander, who succeeded him. Uh, no question. Uh, they, they were top-notch and uh, absolutely on the level. Uh, was there corruption in the ranks of uh, police? Uh, that, yes. Uh, you can't say that uh, uh, every policeman uh, did an honest job. Fiorello needed the full support of his police department in the war against organized crime that was being waged in the streets of New York City. Gangsters like Dutch Schultz, Bugsy Siegel, and Charles Lucky Luciano were involved in a variety of illegal activities that included everything from loan sharking and prostitution to gambling and murder. And the mobsters paid off police officers as well as Tammany Hall politicians to look the other way. In 1935, Dutch Schultz was finally gunned down in a gangland-style slaying. 
Police Commissioner Ballantyne promptly ordered the city's detectives to round up all the other gang leaders and muss them up. This so-called muss them up order had come directly from LaGuardia, and he was roundly criticized by the press for excessive brutality. But Fiorello had shown more than once that this was the way he believed in dealing with criminals. His former aide, Ernest Cuneo, recalls an incident that occurred while LaGuardia was still a congressman. The gangsters of New York got into a fight in Harlem, and they, one of their stray bullets killed a little girl. And he came in in the morning, his face would be black when he was black, I'm telling you, when he was in a rage. And I, this is inexplicable to me at the time, and still is. He said, did you see they killed a little girl in Harlem? Yes, Major. Come along with me, he said. We're going down to see Al Smith, the ex-governor in the Empire State. And he went up and he saw Al Smith. When he came out, his jaw was out and his head sunk. And there was a glistening satisfaction in his eyes. That night, the so-called strong-arm squad went into Harlem with baseball bats. And Velocci testified to this. And every damn gangster they saw, they hit him with a club. Clubbed him in the head and threw him in the gutter. So, he told me, I think it was the ACLU, came down to protest to the these men were, uh, as you may not know, were hit with clubs. LaGuardia said, I know all about it. It's a matter of deep regret to me that there weren't spikes in those clubs. LaGuardia's battle against organized crime continued throughout his years as mayor. That's the gamblers, tin horns, racketeers, and gangsters take notice that they have to keep away from New York from now on. Perhaps LaGuardia's most celebrated victory over organized crime came during the battle against the slot machines. The underworld had forced the slots into candy stores, restaurants, and newsstands throughout the city. Here, the working class and the poor gambled their money and usually lost, which was why Fiorello hated the slots and why he was determined to get rid of them. Deputy Mayor Newbold Morris explains. One of Mayor LaGuardia's first acts was to close up all of the slot machines, confiscated them, took them out on barges into the ocean, personally cracked them up with a sledgehammer, and had them dumped overboard. Like many politicians, Fiorello loved the theatrical gesture, but it also proved to be the best way to dramatize the situation. And by 1935, with the assistance of the courts, LaGuardia had forced almost every slot machine out of the city. Fiorello's war against the slots was only one of numerous moral crusades which he waged during his administration. E. Howard Molisani, who was active in city affairs at the time, speculates on the reasons behind the mayor's actions. It was his, his, feeling, his feeling for the downtrodden that he realized that whether it was gambling, whether it was burlesque or prostitution or anything else like that, those were things which were the afflictions of the, of the downtrodden. And therefore, if he could eliminate them, he'd try to eliminate them. Of all his characteristics, the mayor was perhaps best known for his unshakable honesty when it came to money. When he died, Fiorello's estate consisted of only a few government bonds and not another penny. He had always refused to accept personal contributions. Arthur Siegel, who worked in the Corporation Council office, recalls one incident when LaGuardia received a campaign contribution for $4,000 from some of the city's gambling interests. And he sat back in his chair 
and tore up the check in small pieces and dropped it in the basket and said, don't you boys know anything? This check is from the pinball people. There was never any hesitation about it. He had a dollar honesty about him, uh, which was absolute. Not only was the mayor uncompromising in his own behavior, he demanded complete honesty from all his associates as well. And Fiorello went to great lengths to prevent any type of graft in his administration. Sylvia Lipton. He had this kind of temperament where whatever he did, he did with a, an iron hand. I mean, it's one thing to say I won't tolerate graft, but it's another to say you can't accept the box of candy. But that was the way he, uh, he would behave. Take your last red penny. Borrow some if you haven't any. Buy yourself a new broom. Sweep the blues away. Spend a half a dollar. If you don't, you're a horse's collar. Tidy up that blue room and keep the blues away. Unless I miss my guess. Happiness doesn't hide around corners. Get wise, use your eyes. Maybe you'll get a pleasant surprise. Change that hard luck story. Everything will be honky-dory. Get yourself a new broom and sweep the blues away. The mayor instituted a sweeping house cleaning of the city civil service, where civil service examiners had been open to bribery in the past. Now these exams were administered honestly. And where Tammany Hall had favored the Irish for civil service position, now an increasing number of Jews, Italians, and other immigrants began to fill these jobs. With the Depression, there was little work available in the private sector. So more people entered municipal government than ever before. Arthur Siegel explains how this affected the Corporation Council office where he worked. It was a remarkable office, perhaps never to be duplicated in a public law office for two reasons. It was a product of a depression and a reform administration, the result of which the office uh, was manned with tremendous talent at depression salaries. It functioned uh, without regard to hours. It was a completely dedicated unit of very accomplished men. Talented people were brought into the administration at all levels. In a break with tradition, LaGuardia decided to go outside of New York City to search for his commissioners and to appoint them on the basis of merit, not out of political considerations. Judge Eugene Canuto. LaGuardia made a point of trying to get the best person in the country who was available and, and willing uh, to, to take the uh, job. And uh, if I remember correctly, he got John L. Rice, Dr. John L. Rice, uh, from New Haven, Goldwater for Hospitals, Russell Ford for Purchases, Austin McCormick for Corrections. Uh, the fact that they happened to be far away from New York City and had no involvement whatsoever in any way with politics, any place, uh, that, that, that wasn't even a consideration. It was the Bureau heads and commissioners who formed the core of LaGuardia's administration. But no matter how successful they were, none of them found it easy to serve the mayor. 
Rose Shapiro was one of the reformers who helped elect LaGuardia. LaGuardia was tough. Now, our Paul Blanchard, for example, who headed the City Affairs Committee, was appointed Commissioner of Accounts. That was later called Commissioner of Investigation. And I remember stories that Paul would tell us how LaGuardia would call in his commissioners and say, I want, I want you here at 8 o'clock in the morning. Each commissioner would walk in and there was a whole group of commissioners. And he would ball them out. Interviews conducted for this program revealed that the man the world knew as the little flower was also a little tyrant to his employees. David Rockefeller served under the mayor. I think one of his most remarkable characteristics was his uh, ability to, to be an actor and to change his mood and manner uh, dramatically from one person to another. There would be these commissioners with whom he was fighting, and then some poor woman would come in who had a terrible story to tell about what had happened to her family, and instantly, from one second to another, his whole demeanor would change from one of, of being very irate and, and bawling out someone, a commissioner, to the most tender, gentle person, and he kind of wept with this woman. It was really a, an amazing sight. Ernest Cuneo tells a story about Fiorello and one of his protégés, Paul Kern, who was head of the Civil Service Commission. She fired Paul Kern every day almost. One day Paul went home. Paul said he called up. What the hell are you doing at home? Paul said, I want to refresh your recollection. Three hours ago you fired me. And LaGuardia said very bitterly, and I knew when I did it. You use it as an excuse to take the afternoon off. The mayor also had quite a reputation for being cruel to his subordinates. As Cortland Nicole explains. There's an instance of this cruelty uh, comes out in his dealing with Ed Palmieri, who was his legal secretary at the time. I was in and out of the office, of his office at the time, but I remember that LaGuardia asked Palmieri for the letter that he had asked Palmieri to draft to Governor Lehman, Herbert Lehman. And so Palmieri produced the letter. And in his office at the time were many dignitaries, people who were high up in the city life and the business life of New York. And he read the letter and he tore it up like this and he said, that's the worst letter I have ever seen in my life. Now, Palmieri is a very sensitive person, a very, very decent, nice man, and he was just undone to have his work uh, treated in this manner before all these dignitaries. Anyway, time goes on, and one day, uh, Palmieri picked up the New York Times, and there was his letter, verbatim, the exact letter that he had written to Herbert Lehman. So the first thing he did was he checked around, and he found out that after the letter had been torn up, LaGuardia had brought in secretaries from other departments, not City Hall, but from other departments of the city, to put the letter back again back together again, sort of filling out the jigsaw puzzle. And after they had done that, then the letter went out. So Paul Mary said to the mayor when he had him in the car, just the two of them, he said, why did you do that to me? Why did you do that to me about the letter to Lehman? The mayor's answer was, well, 
You were getting pretty uppity. I thought it was time we took you down a peg. One final incident that illustrates the mayor's relations with his associates is described by Rose Shapiro. I remember a story about Anna Cross, um, who had been appointed a judge, and her reappointment was coming up, and she heard nothing from LaGuardia. So every day she would go to City Hall and ask to see him, and he wouldn't see her. So she'd sit and wait. One day, he came out to go to the men's room, and he said to her, I told you I would let you know and that you were not to come back here. She says, I'm going to follow you until you make the appointment. He says, well, I'm going to the men's room. She says, well, then I'm going to the men's room, too. <laughs> and she went, and she got appointed. While people who serve the mayor seem to agree that he was extremely difficult to get along with, they also generally agree that they wanted to get along with Fiorello. Sylvia Lipton. And with it all, you had a tremendous feeling for this man. He just really mesmerized everyone, at least those who had any respect for him. I think no matter how hard he came down on you, you still felt it was a privilege. Fiorello drove his staff mercilessly. As one of them said, he had no sense of anybody else's life or what they had to do. He expected people to be at his beck and call no matter what hour of day or night he phoned them. And yet, the mayor seemed to demand no more from his staff than he did from himself. When the mayor came into office in 1934, the city was in the midst of a grave financial crisis brought on by the Great Depression. And Fiorello worked tirelessly, refusing even to take brief vacations for a number of years until the crisis receded. He worked just as hard fighting corruption and dealing with health and housing problems during his three administrations. A.A. Burrow recalls. Fiorello's routine was a stiff one. You'd get a telephone call the night before and he'd say, you ought to go out with me. When? Five o'clock tomorrow morning. All right. Then you would show up at his apartment way up on Fifth Avenue, uh, beyond where Fifth Avenue is uh, uh, fashionable. And here would be a couple of cars, and uh, you'd get in, and uh, you'd uh, sail off. The next place you'd come to would be one of the city institutions. Uh, it was not announced. Fiorello would try to get there just about breakfast time, or just before, and the first place he'd begin would be the kitchen, in which he would uh, look at the line of breakfasts coming along, or however it was, and take some himself. If it was edible, <laughs> he noted that. If it wasn't edible, and at that time it frequently was not, uh, then the roof began to go off the building. Uh, he went through that building from top to bottom, and then by the time he got through, if it wasn't in good shape, he'd blow the window out. Fiorello often got involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the city's departments. It was one of the ways he tried to stay on top of what was happening. Some of the mayor's associates have criticized him for this management style, saying that he was too involved in the details of his administration. But others disagree. Judge Eugene Canuto. The important thing was uh, that... He knew what was going on in every department. Then in the last four years of his administration, during his third term, when he had a Sunday morning program, he, he had uh, a, very, very, a very close uh, hold uh, on what was going on in the various agencies and uh, spoke about these things in informing the public. Well, I'm happy to tell you that our campaign to get children back to school has been successful. 
We have now 188,000 children in our academic high schools, and this is about 8,000 above the estimate. Uh, Dr. Commissioner Stebbins of the Health Department informs me that uh, as he, we get a cold spell, uh, the demands uh, uh, from tenants uh, that their apartments are cold are so great that uh, he's unable to uh, cover it with the normal personnel and inspectors that he has. And he's asked for the assignment of uh, 20 investigators from the Department of Welfare. Well, I think that's that's very good uh, suggestion. By the way, getting too many complaints of uh, gambling, I expect the police to uh, tighten up. Uh, tighten up next week now. Show me some results. During his 12 years as mayor, Fiorella LaGuardia brought a distinctive style to New York City politics, a style that proved its effectiveness and substance. LaGuardia succeeded in cleaning up municipal government, and he attracted a new group of men and women into public life, idealistic reformers who were dedicated to serving the city. But when LaGuardia left office, when his singular brand of vigorous leadership was no longer a part of city government, corruption returned to New York with a vengeance. The Tammany machine made a comeback. Labor racketeering, mob control of unions, and police corruption returned in force to New York City in the late 1940s. Historian Mark Mason says, LaGuardia's reforms were a result of his personal obsession with wiping out corruption in an era of poverty that supported reform. But the elements of city life that bred corruption remained the same. LaGuardia died just when a new era was beginning in American politics. Americans had just gone through 15 years of hardship, a depression, and a war. During the war, because of forced rationing, there was a lot of money accumulated that people were unable to spend. And when the war ended, there was a bonanza of speculation and entrepreneurship. Uh, at the same time, after the war, there was an attack on the left. And uh, Americans became suspicious of reform and labor and radical movements, which had had a period of legitimacy in American life. Now, LaGuardia was identified not only with the war on corruption, but also with reform and radicalism and organized labor. And his charisma, as well as the conditions, had allowed uh, a certain state of affairs to occur in New York City. When he died, you not only lost the charismatic leader, you also were in a period where um, radicalism was under attack and where people were interested in material accumulation. And as a result, all the preconditions that had bred corruption throughout the history of New York City returned. And so you had a mayor elected, William O'Dwyer, who was a Democrat, who eventually had to leave the country uh, because of charges of corruption, and Tammany Hall uh, was right back in tow. Fiorello LaGuardia, the dreamer and the doer, has been made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Most of the archival material for this series was provided by the LaGuardia Archives, by the New York City Municipal Archives and Records Center, and by WNYC. The project director is Richard K. Lieberman. The narrator, Tony Lobianco. Project coordinator is Susan Farkas. Scriptwriter, Dick Worth. Script consultant for this program was Mark Mason. Administrator, Edwina Estrella. 
Original theme music is by Mark Lamparello. The mixing engineer is Gary Fink. Associate producer, Susan Vernon. The producer is Tom Vitale.